to walk the road of peace, sometimes we need to be ready to climb the mountain of conflict. Tommy said, Mr. President, you're wrong. Now that takes a lot of guts. I'm for peace and quiet, Mr. Lude. It's why I came to the UN, quiet diplomacy. Yes, well, now to the final edition of A Foreign Affair for this year, where we'll try to unpick some of the trends of this month and this year. And what a year it's been in international affairs, a year that's, of course, been dominated by the war in Ukraine and its many flow-on effects, but also the pandemic and its different stages, uh, which produce different responses, all the related impacts, and with shifting national friendships. Three guests are joining me, Hervé Lemahieu from the Lowy Institute, Richard Haydarian, who's a very well-published um, Filipino commentator, and Su Lin Wong, who's China correspondent for The Economist and host of their recent The Prince podcast. Welcome to you all. Thanks, Geraldine. Thanks very much. Um, Pleasure. Have a broadly speaking, as somebody who watches this acutely, what's intrigued you most or what surprised you most about developments this very rather tumultuous year? Yeah, look, it has been a tumultuous year. I think three broad trends. One is, of course, the fragility of what we might call the rules-based order, obviously with uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine beginning in February. What that showed was that um, all the trend lines that we've been watching for, for years now are accelerating. But at the same time, the paradox is that the, the response was much stronger than anticipated, and at least the West uh, is far more unified than it has been in many years. So Europe and the United States, the, the global West as well, if you want to include some of the US um, allies in Asia, Secondly, I think it's the fact that the um, authoritarian countries have really suffered um, quite a bit of, of reputational setbacks. Putin has been shown not only to be vicious, but also acutely fallible. And I think the authoritarian brand has been severely tarnished, not only by what's happened in Ukraine and by Putin's bl blunders on the battlefield, but also if you look at China, a slowing economy, the social and economic costs of COVID-0 have only mounted. So that has also been a surprise. I think the third factor is this acceleration in deglobalization or, or economic fragmentation, certainly the decoupling in global energy markets as a result of the Ukraine crisis, but then also in, in high tech in the um, uh, chip sector, for example, and that's going to have consequences for many, many countries who fall in between both the mm. US and China poles. Yes, I mean, radical uncertainty is what uh, various commentators have suggested we're living through and that in a way the responsibility of governments is to stay cool in radical uncertainty. There are things that you can do positively in radical uncertainty and then they've got to persuade their citizens that they are in some sort of control. You think there are people who are doing that better than others, do you? I wonder if you'd care to cite them. <laughs> Well, look, I, I think uh, a surprise has been, for example, I don't think anyone could have guessed a year ago that Joe Biden would be in a stronger political position in early December 2022 than either Xi Jinping or Vladimir Putin. So, you know, I think the US has actually done rather well out of these crises and, and through its responses, it has to be said. I think Australia has actually done rather well as well. We've obviously had a change of government, a change of tone and approach to the region. And I think there's far more recognition that we need to broaden our aperture beyond just US and China dynamics, but look uh, to Southeast Asia and the South Pacific. So much more emphasis on, on the role of third countries and much greater recognition that not everyone sees the world through our prism, which is a sort of China 
threat prism. A lot of countries are, are more concerned by U.S.-China competition than they are about uh, the rise of China in and of itself. And, I mean, you control that power index, that very interesting power index for the Lowy Institute, where you look at a range of um, prerequisites for power, not all the typical ones. Like, for instance, the Japanese had been doing remarkably well. Would you say that's continued or has there been a bit of a shift? Yeah, look, I think uh, Japan is adapting. It's obviously an economy in slow decline just by virtue of its of the fact that its uh, population is, is declining and its uh, relative share of the Asian economy is declining. But given that that's a structural factor, you can't really do much about that as a politician. They still do relatively well in terms of using their limited resources to broad-based effect and, and generating quite a bit of clout in places like Southeast Asia and in places like Washington, D.C., and you see them playing both the sort of defence diplomacy card as well as the, the cultural diplomacy, and, and they continue to do rather well. Richard Haydarian, as a very keen observer, would you differ from Hervé's analysis? I absolutely agree. I think we're more or less on the same page now as far as the broad trend analysis are concerned. I think, of course, we all agree that we are facing a poly crisis, right? This is what's unprecedented about our era. We have, We don't have a single... Uh, essentially an engine of uncertainty, but multiple ones from Europe to US and China on both economic and geopolitical fronts. But I think the big story really this year, and perhaps I'm biased because I'm based in Southeast Asia, is really what the Southeast Asian countries have been doing in order to arrest or kind of mitigate this radical uncertainty we're seeing on the global level. So in November, we saw back to back to back summitries from Cambodia to Bali, and then of course in Thailand, And the overarching result of that was essentially a check on Russia. We saw Russia was really isolated in this major summits. If you look at the statesman on Ukraine, essentially identical statements came out of Bali, the G20 summit, and also in APEC, whereby it made it clear that, you know, people are not happy, including some supposed friends of Russia in this part of the world. But more than that, of course, we saw the Bali detente, the breakthrough that happened there. And I think Southeast Asia should get some credit Mm. for not only serving as a host to, but also mediating behind the scenes to make that Biden-Xi Jinping meeting happen. And more than that, to make it sure that something, uh, you know, concrete comes out. So I think we created a floor as far as the new Cold War is concerned. And perhaps we can nudge the two superpowers towards, you know, a better direction. So I think this is where we see middle power diplomacy working. Not only middle power at the level of ASEAN, but also middle power at the level of countries like Indonesia, which are a middle power on in their own rights. We're talking about a trillion dollar economy and a country of almost 300 million people. For me, the other interesting thing here is, is also the poly surprises. So when you look at the Philippines, for instance, I mean, many people were surprised by Marcos Jr., becoming the Filipino president with an emphatic victory, you know, the highest margin of vote for any Filipino president since his father. But for me, what's even more surprising is his foreign policy direction under the uh, under Marcus Jr. I mean, if you look at the Philippines' relations with China and U.S., it has radically shifted under Marcus Jr. So on the surface, Marcus Jr. is a continuity from the Duterte years. But actually, if you break it down, what we see is that our, our alliance with the United States is stronger than ever. And it's an alliance that is not only focused on the South China Sea disputes and shared concerns with China there, but increasingly the Philippines is becoming indispensable to U.S. strategy towards Taiwan. So the Marcus Jr. has been much more open to granting access to key bases, not only in the west of the Philippines, which is neighboring the South China Sea, but also in our northernmost bases, which are close to the southern shores of Taiwan, where a potential invasion can happen in the near future. And lastly, of course, just the other day, 
we saw Japanese warplanes visiting the Philippines for the first time since the end of Second World War. Goodness and me. this time, not in a menacing way, but this time in the spirit of cooperation. So what's happening here is that we're seeing the emergence of an alternative quad. So everyone talks about the quad of India, Australia, Japan, and US, but that's an unusual quad because three are US allies or allies, but India is not. And we saw India is very different in terms of its approach to the Russia question, among others. But now what we're seeing is that the Philippines is bringing another quad together. South Korea, Australia, Japan, and the United States have been conducting different kind of exercises this year in the Philippines. And in fact, next year, there will be as many as 500 joint military activities between the Philippines and US, which is more than any Indo-Pacific ally of the United States, not to mention war games like Balikatan could have up to 16,000 participants, including from Japan, including from Australia, and more and more Koreans are also joining our exercises here. So the Philippines is now suddenly emerging as the pivot state as far as America's integrated deterrence strategy against China is concerned. That's a radical shift from the 30 years where our alliance with the U.S. was up in the air. Well, quite. In fact, just let's have a listen to um, President Marcos dealing with the U.S. Vice President Kamala Harris. We stand with you in defense of international rules and norms as it relates to the South China Sea, an armed attack on the Philippines, armed forces, public vessels or aircraft in the South China Sea would invoke U.S. mutual defense commitments. And that is an unwavering commitment that we have to the Philippines. Now, what intrigued me, Richard, was mm. I thought that, in fact, he didn't take this foreign policy, did he? Or he, was, he wasn't explicit about it to the elections. Um, mm. And he, he's flipped the whole thing. So are the, what yeah. do you think? Are the, citizens, are the citizens on side or is this just sort of a bit yeah. of a unilateral move by him? I think what was happening is that during the election period, because Marcos really needed the Duterteus, I mean, I would argue that probably 40% of the 60% votes he got is really Duterte support, right? Uh, he was sounding more like Duterte when it comes to China, almost defeatist, right? Like we cannot do anything about South China Sea, we have to be nice to them. And he was very lukewarm towards the United States. And this is where I think the Biden administration has done a fantastic real politic job. Now, of course, the progressive in me is a little bit raising its eyebrows, but the <laughs> diplomat in me is impressed. I mean, Biden was the first foreign leader to call and congratulate Marcos. Within weeks, Wendy Sherman, the number two in State Department, visits Manila and assures Marcos that, hey, you're not going to go to jail if you visit U.S., even if your family is facing multiple court cases. Because there are ongoing court proceedings, yes, aren't they? Including yes. contempt yeah. case. Yes, for not attending any of those U.S. court cases. And then you have Anthony Blinken visiting Manila by August. And then you have the vice president, Kamala Harris, visiting and making a very strong statement of, you know, alliance commitments, among other things. So I'm not saying they're schmoozing too much with Marcos, but definitely they have reassured Marcos that he has a safe home or a kind of a safe ally or friend in the United States, if ever, he wants to take a much more American-friendly stance vis uh, in comparison to Duterte. And we see Marcos has wholeheartedly welcomed this shift. And remember, Marcos is here to make it safe for the next generation. Believe it or not, there's another Marcos, Marcos III. Oh, no, is there? Sandra, who could be also <laughs> presidential. So Marcos is making it nice for his son, if every son wants to run. And, 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 and tell me, I haven't forgotten you, Silin Wong, by the way, I'm coming to you. What about the Chinese? How are they reacting to this flipping then? You know... They were under the impression that the Philippines is perhaps just a bigger Cambodia, right? I mean, I, I don't want to be offensive, but sometimes, <laughs> unfortunately, I am. I mean, the idea was that you get Hun Sen, everything else follows, right? I mean, that was the idea of the Chinese. So Duterte, they thought, is their Hun Sen. 
And then they realize that, well, even if you have the Filipino president on your side, you may not have the military, the media, the people, etc. Uh, so mm. I think the Chinese had to recalibrate their expectations. That's why I always said, forget about debt trap. My worry with China was pledge trap. They promised massive investments in the Philippines. None of them really came in. And so the Chinese, I think, already were expecting that things will not go their way in the way that they thought will go when Duterte promised them heaven, right? Which is, will essentially be on your side and abandon U.S. But I think they're still surprised by how fast change, things are changing under Marcos. Even I am surprised. I mean, I foresaw this in a piece back in June that Marcos will be more like his father, meaning strong with U.S., but friendly with China and the others. But it's this is too fast. So my worry is we might get locked into the U.S. strategy on Taiwan and South China Sea in ways that will make it very hard for us to later on recalibrate things towards China. China is having its own worries and anxieties and some recalibration to make. That's why I think they're looking forward to Marcos' visit in January and see what concessions they can get what out What Marcos is going to China in January? Yes, in January. So I'm sure Marcos will do rhetorical damage control, but operationally speaking, huge things are already happening vis-a-vis US. Ah, interesting. Okay. Well, that's a perfect segue to talk about China's year because 2022 hasn't been an easy one for China's President Xi Jinping. I mean, he has had some real highs, most notably at the party congress when he was confirmed for a third term in office and had all his loyal allies, importantly, installed in the key party positions. But some real challenges, some of his own may are very obvious, particularly about, of course, management of COVID with very significant responses from the Chinese people. Now, Su Lin Wong, you've put together this big series, this big podcast series called The Prince for The Economist. What's the audit you'd make of uh, Xi Jinping's year? I think you're right. It has been a really mixed year. So a couple of months ago, we saw him really consolidate his power at this big, important party congress where he appointed a bunch of loyalists and he broke convention to stay on beyond his standard 10 years. Uh, And so over the past 10 years under Xi Jinping, we've seen China become much more closed, much more authoritarian, much less free. Uh, And, you know, he has also been rewarded for that and he's been able to appoint a bunch of his own people now to the very top of the party and he's going to stay on for at least the next five years, perhaps 10 more years, perhaps the rest of his life. It's it's very, very hard to know. But despite his consolidation of power, he faces huge challenges, as you just mentioned, Geraldine, you know, zero COVID being the the big one. And over the past few weeks, we've seen this extraordinary shift away from China's zero COVID policy towards an incredibly messy exit that I think has taken many China watchers by surprise. And, you know, we we first saw some whispers of this after the important political meeting. You know, there was a a plan announced about how China was going to ease some of its COVID restrictions. Bear in mind that for the past three years, people in China have paid an immense cost because of China's zero COVID policy. Earlier this year, we saw one of the world's financial centres, Shanghai, go into lockdown, you know, but actually there's been tens of millions of people enrolling lockdowns across the country, not just this year, but in 2020 and 2021 too. Now we're seeing a sort of shift away from that policy, but it's likely that things are going to get a whole lot worse before 
or they get better because of low vaccination rates among the elderly, Mm. the fact that most people have been jabbed with Chinese vaccines rather than the more effective Pfizer and uh, other mRNA vaccines. And um, China just does not have the number of hospital beds it's going to need as uh, more and more people contract COVID. And so there are, you know, worst case scenario estimates that 1.5 1.5 million people might die uh, as China comes out of COVID. Look, it's very interesting the world, the role of nationalism in modern China, and it has been much discussed. That you know that this has been very much a feature of the Chinese Communist Party, sort of in a way whipping up nationalism. I read a, a very interesting piece by somebody called Yun Zhang. She's from the Australian Institute of the International Affairs, talking about the way in which nationalism and all the sort of contract between the Chinese Communist Party that, that if you submit to our rule, we'll continue to ensure the economy grows. And that actually the COVID lockdown somewhat broke that compact, particularly among young people's attitudes. It's tempered nationalist sentiment among young people because they can see that the outside world is living slightly differently. Now, Mm. I thought that was possibly, you know, the biggest changes since 1989, Suleen. I wonder if you, how you take that interpretation. I think undoubtedly we've seen a huge rise in nationalism in China under Xi Jinping over the past 10 years or so. What what I would note about those extraordinary protests we saw in China a few weekends ago where, you know, very, very brave, mostly young people came out and protest in multiple cities uh, in a way that we haven't seen since, as you mentioned, 1989. You know, their courage is to be commended. But that was, you know, in total maybe a couple of thousand people around the country in a country of 1.4 billion people. So I think it's very, very hard to make broad assessments of what people across this enormous country are saying. But no doubt that among an elite and, you know, among like university students and a liberal elite, there is huge frustration and huge anger and huge disappointment at the direction the country is heading in. But I wouldn't say that we can say for sure that that is how everyone across the country is feeling. No. It's really interesting as well to draw some parallels with Australia here, because just as in Australia, COVID zero in China was very popular until it wasn't. (laughs) Right. And democracies and and authoritarian systems have to grapple with exactly the same shift in sentiment. What's interesting, though, is to see how that sort of tipping point plays out in an authoritarian system far less suited to accommodating changes in popular will. And I've been surprised by how quickly the about face from from Beijing has come. Now, of course, uh, in practice, um, that is very messy and it's almost inevitable that uh, COVID rates and and mortality rates will will climb. And and who knows what the effects of that will be on on how Xi Jinping Mm. is judged uh, by his population. Look, before we leave China, there was a very interesting conference this week run by the Australia-China Research Institute talking about 50 years of formal relationship between China and Australia, at which Madame Fu Ying, who was the former very, very popular ambassador here for China, now very senior in foreign affairs in China, at which she spoke in her very sophisticated way, telling us to not cast gratuitous judgments on Chinese behaviour internally. Let's have a listen. There's uh, always high public attention on anything that concerns human rights. I understand it. I think it's rooted in Australian history and its own experience. Just like the Chinese are very sensitive about foreign interference, it's also rooted in our history. We were 
semi-colonized and we had trauma in our history. So we are very sensitive about any other foreign interference. So when the Australians are interested in China's domestic affairs, I understand it too. But if Australians think they have the right to finger pointing at China, and some people, they talk like they know better how to run China. It's not welcome, not at all. (laughs) Not welcome, not at all. Just a little reminder there, as I said, of um, a a small shot across the bows. Now, look, before we leave today, I want to go to Indonesia. It was the site, of course, of the big G20 meeting. There's a lot happening. There's these quite surprising developments around management of sexual behaviour around uh, attitudes towards the president, also attitudes to judges, let alone uh, the president trying to build this big new capital for which he doesn't seem to be able to encourage any money. Richard Haydarin, what's your Mm. take on the state of Indonesia at the moment, given you have this Southeast Asian focus? Yeah, actually, I, I personally feel a little bit burned about this because for the past two, three, three years, I kept on saying like Indonesia is a country that deserves much more attention and recognition internationally. And I was a little bit disappointed when Jokowi's visit to Ukraine and Russia to kind of mediate the conflict. I felt it was not getting the kind of recognition and respect in the Western media circles or at least some of the circles. So I felt Indonesia was like really the world's biggest invisible nation. And you know, I was in Bali and Jakarta over the past week or so. I mean, I saw how much they invested in these events, infrastructure-wise, prestige-wise, emotionally-wise. So I felt perhaps maybe Indonesia's time has arrived, not only as a kind of a rising economy and expected to be one of the biggest in the world in the coming decades, but also as a major Muslim democracy, right? I mean, I spend a lot of time in the Middle East. This issue of Islam and democracy has been at the top of my head for quite some time. And then suddenly this comes down. But if you break it down, it's classic case of Javanese balancing, right? So on one hand, there is this kind of a retrogressive aspect to it. Clearly, we have no idea how is this going to be implemented. Like the first thing comes to your mind, what happens to the tourists, right? Foreign tourists to go to places like Bali, right? Yeah, they say it won't apply effectively to tourists. Exactly, right. (laughs) But but you can imagine a lot of gray area implementations uh, or or gray areas uh, in the law could provide room for abuse. On the other hand, remember, the new uh, constitutional revision also talks about the centrality of Panchasila, right? Mm. The semi-secular uh, cornerstone of the Indonesian state that emphasizes respect for plural, pluralism that is inherent to the Indonesian society, including their Buddhist, Hinduist, uh, non-Muslim uh, tradition. And that's why if you look at it, the main Islamist party in Indonesia actually had reservations with this law because it knows that it could prevent it from pushing for a much more exclusivist Islamist version or vision of Indonesia. But clearly, this could also be weaponized against leftist, progressive, semi-communist mm. groups in the country. Mm. So it's really 50 shades of questionability. Right? <laughs> well, <laughs> that's, the human, human rights bad. watch researcher Andreas Hasono told the BBC that people are saying, oh, this, these oppressive laws could be applied broadly. He said, no, it's that they'll, be, they'll provide avenues for very selective enforcement. Exactly. That's his exactly worry. Right. <laughs> exactly. Uh, just a last point. I'm sure our authors have a lot to say on this, but my point is, you know, if, if you're Philippines right now, it kind of gives you a shot on Freud in, in the worst <laughs> sense of the word. Because remember, under Duterte, suddenly the Philippines was not considered as the most democratic country in the region. And I felt weird that Indonesia was considered more democratic than us under Duterte, although I understand where that's coming from. But now the Philippines has once again cemented this position as the most democratic country in the region, except 
all of us are operating from extremely low base. And so what's happening with Indonesia, it's, it's really a, it's, it's, it's semi-tragic because it tells you about the limits of the democratization march in Southeast Asia, where there's extreme level of economic dynamism. But in terms of our political democratization, we're really seeing ceilings here. We're really seeing limits to this. And if Jokowi mm. is not going to do this in terms of pushing for democratic reform and, and deepening, I wonder what's going to happen after Jokowi when you can have even much more questionable or, or authoritarian populist figure mm. lurking over the horizon. So that's the worry mm. I have. Right. I might give you final well, comment, uh, Heve. Yeah, look, I mean, just to end on a slightly more positive note, I mean, I agree with with everything that uh, Richard has mentioned, and um, it, it is concerning. There's a lot of ambiguity, but the ambiguity itself is is concerning. Uh, look, just to come back to the winners of 2022, I, I, and to end on an optimistic note, I do think on the on the on the on the level of foreign policy, uh, Indonesia and Cambodia do deserve uh, special credit mm. for for keeping the G20 running for uh, for in Indonesia's case, and for uh, Cambodia for not replicating Replicating um, its disaster in 2012. I think ASEAN as well as Cambodia have moved on since that debacle and we may have to and you might remember that was a time when basically uh, Cambodia essentially as chair in 2012 uh, vetoed uh, the ability to produce a joint policy document at leadership level on the question of the South China Sea reportedly at China's request. That has not really replicated itself and I think both uh, Cambodia and Indonesia really deserve credit for keeping multilateralism going at a time when it's uh, under unprecedented pressure and as R Richard has mentioned earlier uh, for exercising that sort of middle power agency in our region in ways that have surprised us. I think you know no G20 presidency has had to face the geopolitical challenges that Indonesia was dealt mm -hmm. with this year. The summit was not boycotted. It did not fall apart. It produced a communique which uh, in, in, in very broad terms uh, condemned uh, the, Russia's invasion of Ukraine further than many people thought. And I think it has to be considered a success. So it keeps the flame of multilateralism alive. And for that reason alone, I believe uh, Cambodia and Indonesia both deserve some special credit. Okay. Well, that is a very interesting overview. Thank you to you all for covering so much. So economically, Heva Lemahu, Richard Haydarian and Sulin Wong, thank you so much. Thank, thank you. you. And Pleasure. Thank you very much. And just also mention that next week uh, we will be inviting Mick Ryan uh, back to the show for a sort of an audit at the end of the year of, of the conduct of the war, given those really quite interesting developments about uh, um, Putin talking about, talking about a negotiated settlement. Extraordinary. Stream any ABC radio station live and on the go. Discover new podcasts, music and audiobooks, all free on the ABC Listen app.